Edgewood Arsenal, Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, 1952. As part of a secret government program termed Project Penguin, medical doctor and psychiatrist Andrea Puharic set up a special laboratory where psychics and military personnel gathered to investigate psychological manipulation and hallucinogenic drugs. Perhaps one of the most compelling and controversial aspects of Puharic's research was channeling, which involved making contact with non-physical beings through the use of psychics. It's very important that we understand that this was a serious scientific endeavor. No candles or holy water, any of that was used. Puharic used the Faraday cage, a copper room that was specially insulated according to US Naval standards. It would prohibit mid-level electromagnetic waves and electrostatic. In this Faraday cage, individuals would relax and allow the mind over matter signal to take place. In December 1952, Puharic invited Hindu mystic and doctor D.G. Vinod to one of these channeling sessions. During the experiment, Vinod went into a deep trance and made contact with a group of entities called the Nine. At the very beginning, they just announced themselves as nine principles of the universe. Well, that's pretty big to start with. But nevertheless, they said they were extraterrestrials. They were forces from beyond. The nine said that they uh, were an eternal presence, that they had been watching humanity from the very beginning, and that they were gods, guides, and this was what particularly interested Puharic, the idea that if they are gods, they of course have wisdom, and Puharic wanted to ask for guidance. The Nine came up with a number of different messages involving their being guardians for the human race, creators even. Puharic, he said, what is your name? Who are you? And that was the great revelation because the being said, I am Atom. And Atom was the great father god of ancient Egypt. And introducing not only the nine principles, but the nine great gods or the Ennead of ancient Egypt. Is it possible that Puharic actually made contact with the nine great gods of Egypt? Could this be evidence of a long-standing federation of extraterrestrials overseeing earthly affairs? But if so, just who were these beings? I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another.
Okay, so uh, uh, welcome to um, the next episode of the Stargate Conspiracy and the Return of the Repressed. And since because we did not um, get a proper introduction in the last episode, and you might be wondering who it is that I'm talking to about all these very important things, um, we will do the introduction this time. So um, my good friends, uh, Reed and Colin, would you like to... Uh, Introduce yourselves. Maybe Reed, you can start since you talked the most in the last episode, and people might be curious to know who you are. Sure, Hi everybody. Uh, uh, my name is Reed. Um, I am a, a recovering and former academic, um, and no longer in in history academia, but um, pursuing those interests, uh, you know, in a in a you know a more amateur um, and uh, pure form. Uh, through shows like Marcus's, um, and uh, I'm I'm interested in generally, um, you know, history of science, but in particular the history of uh, pseudoscience as it manifests in cults, um, fronts for intelligence organizations, um, and all of the uh, bizarre, strange, uh, esoterica that uh, shows like Marcus's get into. Oh, that's nice. And you are you you are actually like one of the good people from from the new world, right? You're Canadian. You're not an American. <laughs> You're not a, a, the United American. We're we're one of the more polite Nazis, uh, who uh, <laughs> our, our, our our politeness is proportional to the uh, to the to the um, strength of our of our Nazi impulses. Um, anybody who's listening to this will, will certainly know about the um, incident in Canadian Parliament where we uh, our, our elected officials gave a standing ovation to a veteran of the SS Waffen uh, division. Um, but um, <laughs> it's hard yeah. to come back from that. It's hard to come back from that. I mean, you'd, you'd think it would be hard for to, to come back from um, our prime minister having done blackface, not just three times, but so many times that he uh, went on record as saying he's not sure how many times he did it um, <laughs> in, a, in a media interview. Uh, but um, uh, we've got pretty good PR. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, even my brother, who's not very politically entwined, he loves all the uh, Trudeau is Castro's son memes. That is like oh really like <laughs> it. I'm I'm more and more convinced that this is the case. But uh, yeah, that's for another episode, obviously. Uh, yeah, and uh, so Colin from the dark uh, heart of the empire. Uh, who are you? Would you like to tell my my audience who you are? Yeah, so from the uh, uh, from the Imperial Corps, uh, the United Snakes of America. Um, I'm a archaeologist in the southeastern United States, Tennessee, uh, specifically. Um, I got interested in this stuff way back in high school. Uh, went to a Christian high school, and I was very kind of interested in alternative history, wondering how how did humans advance so fast? How did they build the pyramids? And I read the Stargate conspiracy back whenever, Ooh, it must've been 2005, 2006. And, uh, didn't really think too much about it. Didn't think about the parapolitical implications of it. Uh, went on in college, did anthropology, uh, went got my master's in archeology span and, uh, kind of got into the parapolitical recently, probably two years ago. And, Reed mentioned, oh, I'm reading The Stargate Conspiracy. <laughs> and I was like, I know that book. Uh, I have a copy of that still sitting on my shelf. And I reread it recently and uh, kind of saw it through a new light whenever you start looking at this kind of stuff through uh, more of a intelligence and, you know, 
her political lens, and it uh, it, it changed a lot of things. Uh, changed how you look at this kind of stuff, so to speak. Yeah, of course. Uh, it, re- it really does. Um, because I think also this is how I came into it. I'm not really a big UFO guy. Like, Reed is our... Uh, star child right like he, he he's the uh, the expert on the the ufo things and so i think uh, like yeah colin you'll you'll have to sort of slam down the uh, the hardcore knowledge when we eventually do get to the um the egypt part of this story you know because right now that seems so outlandish that this will eventually connect into uh theories about giza and stuff, you know, like we, we've only talked about, well, we talked about a lot, like the Nazis, we talked about the, the CIA and everything, but nothing seems to bring us back to the to the pyramids yet. And so I really, I'm really looking forward to to hear, you know, I, I this is really what, what I'm mostly interested in as well. And when I also, you know, started reading this book and getting into how, you know, how can there be a connection between, you know, Egypt and Mars, for example, uh, which is, you know, ideologically um, uh, entertaining, but but also when you get they get into it a little bit in the book, and I I know that you know more about this as well, but just the structure of archaeology in general, and like how we might think if we were only to listen to the alternative or the fringe archaeologists like Hancock. We might assume that there are two sides to this, you know, that there is the fringe archaeologists who are like, you know, being kept back and they have the real truth. And then there are the, you know, the, the, the gray bureaucrats of the true mandates, which dates back, you know, to, to the Napoleonic invasion. Uh, and, and, you know, th- those are the official Egyptologists and they are the other side of this debate. But in actuality, we find a lot of sus organizations who are funding both sides and 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 you know something as sorry colin something as boring as archaeology to many people is actually the site of uh a lot of intelligence apparatuses investigation um i don't know if you have personal experience with that if you were ever told not to dig further or not but uh, maybe you have I uh, I have not been told not to dig further. Um, I have been told to quit talking. Um, but it's you. You are correct. There are there are a couple different you know schools of thought. There's the 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 ivory what we would call the ivory tower academics who you know tell us where truth comes down. You know, and then there is the kind of more cutting edge where uh, you know the the ivory tower would say humans have been in North America for twelve thousand years. And uh, the more cutting edge stuff says, you know, there's actually a lot of evidence that it's probably we've been here a little bit longer. And then there is the ancient alien school as well. So I would say there there are three different ways kind of of looking at archaeology as a whole. Um, And it is, as you said, uh, the intelligence community and a lot of really weird connections, they pop up in all three of those schools. Um, And there's probably a lot of really interesting reasons why. Um, So... That's that's what I really enjoy about all of this is we can we can kind of examine all three of those. Yeah, that's a perfect thing, right? Like uh, it's really you are the third pill, you know. That, that we we can't just have the red matrix and the blue standard. Like there is a third sort of middle ground when we start to realize that, um, yeah, there is. I don't want to spoil it too much, but like I'm 
people might have already figured it out, but um, the, the, uh, the, the general ideology, I already spoke about this before, but the general sort of bourgeois idealism or the ario heroic uh, conviction of the fringe archaeologists is basically the same as, as those who, who are in the ivory tower. And so there's got to be, like, for example, you said now, I don't know, like we talked a little bit about that, not to get, you know, too off point, but just to remain within this introduction, why this is interesting. Um, for example, those feet, right? Like the, the footprints recently, like talking about yes. like when were people first in the Americas, right? Like in, in Hancock. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the white yeah. sands footprints. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. And Hancock is trying to make a case, right, about... Uh, uh, when people were first in America, that is so far out that it almost appears as a shit code as to, you know, not even pay any attention to the actual ar- archaeological work that is being done to sort of fight the ivory tower uh, assumption about the Clovis first model and things like that. Right. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point where you have to start asking the question: Why are they, you know, pushing this? Because if you look at people like Hancock, and uh, they mentioned this in the story of conspiracy, is you know the the big date for them is what was it ten thousand years? I I believe it is ten thousand years ago. So uh, why why is ten thousand five hundred BC? Why is that such an important date for them? Um, and you can there's a lot of different ways you can look at that, but it all comes back to one very you know kind of specific ideology that uh that you really need to question their motives and also where are they getting this from? Um, and that's where you start to see a lot of intelligence connections, which uh, I did not pick up on the first time that I read this, but it, uh, it stands out a lot now for sure. Yeah, it does. And this is of course the, um, the, the R right. Yeah. The, uh, the association for research of enlightenment, right. Or is that what they called the A? Right. Yeah. The, uh, the Edgar Casey and Jason foundation. Right, right, yeah. Uh, today we will not, you know, we, we, I don't think we will make it there yet. We will remain in the world of uh, 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 UFOs and, and more, um, uh, yeah, more extra. Tra- it is literally far out, right? Because it is supposed to be beyond our galaxy many times. Uh, maybe not beyond our galaxy, but definitely beyond our solar system. Um, but we, we did see, we did mention... Uh, that this is where this eventually is going and uh, your questions of inquiry like your suspicion will be only be deepened when we try to figure out why they are so freaking interesting in the Giza pyramids which should make us interested in them as well somehow you know we shouldn't think that it that has all been clarified but that does not mean that it hasn't been clarified because they're hiding the fact that, that they were made with lasers and ultrasound uh, telekinesis, which, you know, I'm just putting it in those terms now to, to make the pyramid idiot sound more, even more idiotic. But there are interesting things there, and uh, which, you know, uh, Reed said initially, I'm very, uh, like you, I'm very interested also in the um, history of science. And so is Colin wondering... Um, you know, wh- how, how does actually technology um, influence the autonomy, uh, the relative autonomy of the superstructure? You know, like when we talk about uh, civilization and, you know, making a good life for people, um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not, 
maybe it's not you don't only have to say something like oh lasers you know because that's what we have now and that's what we think is the coolest right now in our star wars mind but maybe there are other things uh, that they had that were even more prevalent more popular in those times which can be considered technological innovations um which um just simply by the fact that they had that it had a different position in, in in that time you know everybody for example talks about how the uh, electronic car was already invented in the 1800s right so was the solar panel and things like that you know it, it's a question obviously of priorities and granted the builders of the pyramids had very different priorities than us still though they were a class society you know class society is a neolithic phenomenon but um yeah, the very fact that our contemporary intelligence apparatuses put a lot of money into creating a story about how the pyramids were built, I think is a lot more interesting than the simple sort of, I don't know, Nietzschean teenager outburst that, oh, they don't want us to know about the laser cutting tools. Uh, you know, there's still something there. But um, yeah, uh, uh, since we're not getting into that today, maybe Reid, would you like to uh, give uh, the audience a small recap of what it is that we have been talking about so far, and uh, and then we'll start to to head that you know further down the the menace, <laughs> the the, uh, the the craziness of uh, of um, uh, the the intelligence apparatuses profound interest also in things like ufo and well they don't say laser then but yeah that star wars world of ours sure so um of the last couple of episodes we've talked uh chiefly about uh one guy and one institution the guy being andrea puharic um and the institution being the u.s central intelligence agency um in in sort of uh building up um their role in um both uh, studying um, psychic phenomena and promoting interest and belief in, in it uh, through hypnosis and through the um, Faraday cage tests that uh, Puharich was um, funded to do on behalf of um, not just the CIA, but also just the, the, the Defense Department and the Private Foundation, the Roundtable Foundation. Um, we um, sort of looked at the the early days um, of, of influences that, that led into some of the stuff that um, both you and Colin were just talking about. So a couple of the um, sort of like important concepts and, and items that we, we touched on um, first was the serious mystery. This is one of the um, more influential but less read these days books uh, sort of promoting an ancient aliens narrative um, by Robert Temple, um, which uh, Marcus, as you talked about, um, being um, promoted by uh, uh, the CIA itself and, and some of the um, the key narratives of, um, you know, this um, tribe in, in um, um, uh, a tribe called, called the Dogon, uh, who purportedly had advanced knowledge uh, of um, the Sirius star system, which Robert Temple um, and, and others sort of uh, explain as, well, they must have been contacted by uh, aliens from there uh, or uh, other kinds of advanced civilizations um, that gave them knowledge that could only be explained uh, with technological capabilities that are beyond what they display now. Um, we also got into the history of um, other ends of um, 
CIA research like MKUltra uh, and uh, Project Artichoke, both of which uh, Puharich uh, was involved with and uh, seems to have applied throughout the rest of his career um, in very, uh, I think, uh, to, to call his uh, hypnosis practices unethical kind of misses the mark. It's like he, he was using them anti-ethically, like ethics. He was just doing like probably one of the most evil hypnotists I've ever heard of that wasn't just... Um, you know, uh, uh, the extent of his crimes, um, uh, uh, we're getting a little bit of a clearer picture of and something that we, we may get into, we may not, um, today, but, um, definitely, uh, uh, abusing even beyond what MK ultra sort of seemed to try to be, uh, weaponizing something like hypnosis towards, um, we also then got into, um, like I mentioned before with Puharich's role in the, uh, the, the, the round table foundation and, um, early experiments into uh, psychic powers, um, his role in uh, leading and promoting the cult of the nine. Um, the um, supposedly, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, the uh, Egyptian Ennead uh, or um, extraterrestrial gods and uh, channeling them through various um, human hosts. Um, as sort of part of that, we talked about the uh, Virilian incident, uh, which um, was the uh, live... Um, hacking of a TV broadcast in uh, Southern uh, England on November 26th, 1977, um, showing uh, sort of a, an advanced um, technological capability of followers of the nine um, and uh, clearly hinting at an intelligence agency um, or, or military security um, apparatus intervention in trying to promote, um, at least among some circles, uh, the uh, the narrative of um, the nine is a real powerful force that has the ability to not just be channeled through individuals, um, but um, seemingly affect change uh, in in non connected um, circles as well. Anything I uh, I missed that you want to uh, you want to cover, Marcus? Uh, no, I I think that that was that was a great summary. I was hoping maybe Colin, like since you know this is all. Uh, you know, our talk will continuously orbit the nine. And Colin, maybe would you like to tell the audience, like, what are these uh, in, in the ancient Egyptological sense or the ancient Egyptian sense, right? Um, what were, who, who were the nine, originally speaking? Like, the, as I understand it, there is in ancient Egypt, like, when you study... Yeah, the first kingdom, the second kingdom, and the third kingdom, right? And then there are these intermediary periods, uh, generally considered just like in European bourgeois historiology uh, as dark periods. But actually what we find out is that like, it is during these intermediary periods that a lot of um, inventions are actually uh, uh, brought to force. Like they, it is often on the fringes of these bronze empires, for example, you can see that, uh, I think, at least in three instances where uh, iron is discovered not within the core of the Bronze Empire, obviously, because they don't want things to change, right? Like they have been enjoying the status quo for thousands of years. They don't want to end the Bronze Empire and start, you know, uh, thinking about iron, iron being a more democratic metal, if you like, since it is more readily available it is cheaper in terms of like how to process it, which means that, you know, um, it's sturdiness as well. That would be an, a third point. Make sure that you can inherit it. Like peasants can inherit a, a, an iron plow, for example, whereas you would never be able to inherit uh, 
a bronze plow. I don't need, yeah, bronze plows are usually something you find in, in, in graves, right? Like sort of ceremonial things. I don't think they ever were uh, popularly used, but but just as a as a general point about intermediary periods, it points towards um, the fact that like civilization as such is a very stagnating force. You know, it is not a very innovative force. But uh, during this time, then like the the development of these uh, particular kingdoms in the Egyptian history, we see that the center also of like religion and the ideological, the autocratic center that is. The political, the juridical, the religious um, centers—they they shift, right? Like from different places, and I think the uh, the nine are gods of um, uh, Heliopolis, right? Uh, do I have that correctly? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So generally, what what we kind of see within uh, history, kind of moving forward, is the very early culture, kind of, if you have a hunter-gatherer, kind of a dispersed society, uh, you have more of a, a pantheon of gods. <clears throat> and these pantheons, they each of these gods kind of represents a different aspect of, in, in most cases, nature. Um, and as you move closer to the advent of agriculture, um, agriculture is generally a more complex, use that term very loosely uh, and uh, carefully, um, kind of society, and it requires a little bit more overseeing because uh, you have to, you know, prepare the land. Uh, you have a surplus that you need to manage, and so whenever you have agriculture come about, you start to see more uh, stratification with the society. This is the beginning of class societies, and so what you see with the advent of agriculture is uh, more of a monotheistic kind of outlook. And so the nine is a really interesting reflection of that because uh, the nine moved from you know the nine original kind of gods of ancient Egypt um, into they move into nine aspects of one god, and that god becomes Atum. Uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm my Egyptian is not great. Um, and so uh, you you see uh, these these nine aspects who they may have been worshipped at different centers throughout Egypt or represented different aspects um, around Egypt into one, and that one becomes Atum, and that is represented within the pharaoh. And so you see the the religion of ancient Egypt uh, kind of as they you know become a agricultural powerhouse. Um, both, you know, in terms of your mode of production, of how you're getting the resources that you need to live, but also um, the kind of scale of building and the scale of your society, uh, they transfer all of that into one god, and that is represented within the pharaoh. And you see this throughout pretty much every society uh, within the world. Um, the same can be kind of said for Judaism as well, where you have some Canaanite gods who are transferred into one and that becomes, you know, the god of the Abrahamic religions. So uh, that's that's kind of where the nine, uh, as as we look at it through a, you know, archaeological anthropological lens, uh, kind of come from. Right. And so we we will get back to that. My personal opinion is that this is why the nine are chosen uh, as a sort of. Um, uh, Poseidon master signifier then, since there, it is 
you know, it, it is an emphasis on the very lack of a master signifier, though we we we, we can suss out that there, uh, you know, Paharish likes to be the one who is surrounded by eight others, right? Like this, we have we have somewhat established already, uh, and we will continue to establish. And uh, um, but even even you know, despite the very fact that they are vulgarizing something very ancient, and this is you know what the the authors of the book take great offense with, since they seem to be or they claim to be you know, great appreciators of the original nine, the ancient Egyptian gods. And um, even in the history of ideas, um, you know, the very, uh, the beginning of monotheism and the beginning of uh, the Abrahamic tradition, uh, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but like there, that there will be, there is something there. There is something that happens in Egypt at this time which um, we know that the sort of the Fourth Reich or, you know, the Arya heroic assumption of uh, our contemporary order of things, they would not like to see this rewritten. Uh, they would not like to see the history of uh, uh, science and uh, everything that is important to begin with the Greeks. And uh, the fringe archaeologists does very little to to also you know to to uh, to change that narrative. Um, they, they'll just say things that you know technology was invented way before, but somehow it is still the same looking people. <laughs> it is often white people who seem to be inventing these things, but even earlier. And so there is things happening with Akhenaton, for example, and the uh, Moses uh, walk. Uh, out of um, you know leading his people out of Egypt and promising them a, them a home, uh, there are things to for us to return to uh, when we start to suss out why is it that, that the nine have been chosen? Why is it this particular time in space and 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 time that um, that they choose to make something out of this? But um, today, then. Um, as we try to go on from uh, uh, Reed's uh, recap, we, we we finished with the, the Lawrence Livermore uh, nuclear incident, where where Reed told me uh, adequately. I think that was a great like sort of live uh, indication of how how, <laughs> how you should tell your friends what's what when they want when they get too into these things. Read your your uh, you're a veteran in these things. I I, I don't want to even know how many times you've had your dreams shattered uh, about uh, you know stargazing, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you you definitely shattered my dreams about uh, you know this nuclear power plant that maybe there is something to it. <laughs> no, <laughs> have you heard about the Skinwalker Ranch, my friend? The next step for us would be this. Generally, takes place. Uh, Art shock obviously is like early fifties, and um, and that that first book uh, by Robert Temple, um, the serious mystery, which is based also on uh, you know French anthropological research from the fifties. Uh, this is part of a sort of restart for the counterculture movement in many ways. We can see that this is something that somebody, I mean. Parts of it is seem to be organic. Uh, there are French, you know, 
political uh, um, revolutionaries or organizers at least who uh, who do get, who who do engage with this cultural phenomenon of UFOs and and, and fringe archaeology. Uh, so the morning of the magician sort of kickstarts this. Um, 70s late 60s return to the interest of well to a degree what was put forward by these early french anthropologists about the serious mystery uh but it, but it's much broader than that i mean the, the original work on the dogon was you know pretty exclusive anthropological like fringe interest like fringe in the sense that like not many people paid attention to this yeah what what i think this speaks about is uh, a sort of shift in uh, fringe archaeological and UFO interest moving from uh, a subculture, um, a sort of not very popular, but still, you know, prevalent uh, subculture into a pseudo religion proper. land down in the the days of October 1973 uh, it's an autumn just like where we are now then unfortunately for the nine uh, their carefully laid out plans for Geller never came to fruition um, he appeared on the the David Damblebby show on British television and was launched into overnight psychic superstardom a little bit too popular, I guess, for Paharish uh, uh, taste. And uh, Geller and Paharish then went their separate ways soon afterwards, and the former has distanced himself from the Nine ever since. Now, the Nine, it transpired, did not really need Geller, despite having told him that he was the one to be, you know, the only one for the next 50 years to come. They continued to... Uh, do what they had been doing, <laughs> but with the help of Geller, but with somebody else. And so the two key people who appears here are uh, Sir John Whitmore and Phyllis Schliemer. And we, we will return to Schliemer later, because she's also very important, an important person to understand as how does this become a pseudo religion? 
But Sir John Whitmore was the man mentioned next to Baharish in that hijacked TV message from the north of England. And uh, he was born from a wealthy aristocratic family in Britain. His uh, father seemed to have been somewhat of a fanatic uh, as he served in the Boer War as a volunteer. That is in South Africa, right? Against the Boer. And uh, (laughs) Whitmore Sr. then would uh, continue to rise within the ranks of knighthood and received uh, the second highest Iron Cross of the British system uh, during the First World War. Obviously, it's not called Iron Cross in England. It's called something else, which I do not care about. Um, But um, yeah, his son then, John Whitmore, on the other hand, was by the early 70s, as he got in contact with Paharish, of course, training at the SLN Institute and about to become the elder name within the new coaching world. And so this is quite interesting because I think we like to think about coaching as something, you know, quite secular, <laughs> something, you know, very everyday life. Um, but it starts here at the SLN Institute and it starts here with John Whittemore. And by the end of the 70s, he would go on to create uh, the inner game in Britain, which is an odd choice of title coming out of the San Francisco area scene at that time especially for those who remember the Jonestown episode uh, in which I began to elaborate upon a disturbing link between Jim Jones and some of the LSD doctors of, you know, the game proper surrounding the Synanon group therapy experiment. And this was my talk about Van Dusen, my my original research, uh, simply because I kept on hearing about Van Dusen from Jonestown uh, recordings. And, uh, and obviously the fact that he was very interested in Swedenborg, who is buried just a few minutes away from, from my hometown, or in my hometown, actually, uh, in, the, in the Uppsala church, I was, I was getting really interested in, in this. Now, you know, Whitmore is, is, is not the game of Synanon, uh, as far as I know, but it is the inner game, which was already uh, a spin-off of what another American from the SLN Institute had been starting to develop. But uh, Whitmore, he was a race driver, and his co-creator then uh, was a semi-pro tennis player. So I think this is, from my personal experience, this is one of the most lasting aspects of the inner game, um, which is, you know, this use of transpersonal psychology theories. They are very often hidden behind a sort of sports or, you know, athlete uh, jargon in the coaching of uh, business executives and, you know, the rank and file corporate hierarchy. And I, I'll just ask, seeing as, you know, I, I have been employed at times. Uh, I'm employed right now as well. You know, I work at a junior high school. Uh, but when I worked in Sweden, the few times that I have had uh, employment, it, it often does happen that you you uh, you are forced to go to some fucking seminar telling you about like growth mindset and uh, you know how to become a better you know how to become better at your work when it's really like you know how to become a better like homo economicus sort of like how you know how much can they tell us about uh, uh, individual you know traits of uh, of improvement rather than uh, um, I don't know uh, union organizing and, and so on so I'll just ask does any of you, have any experience with this, this, uh, you know, the, the, the athlete mindset jargon being connected to the 
transpersonal psychology of of the wage earner in the office and you know how to make yourself yeah more uh, uh, efficient as it were um i've um i've encountered it in the um in the athletics uh use case but mercifully uh, i've not yet had to uh go through it in an office training or at a uh, at a holiday party so fingers crossed that uh that i remain free of that yeah so uh we've had it recently um we've had a couple office training sessions where uh it's been training us to train other people and they they literally they use this exact same language of we are coaches and we are you know helping out our teammates and uh it's very it has a very cult-like kind of vibe to it um and it's very uncomfortable to sit through and i'm not being paid anymore to be someone's coach so it's uh not something that i really enjoy or look forward to yeah i i don't think any sane person should look forward to these kind of things like <laughs> it is really demoralizing as you said earlier like i don't know it's uh yeah yeah i told you guys that uh one time i went to one of these things in sweden and they had some uh, it was extra saddening because the the speaker was an ex uh, runner, I think, like a hedge runner. I don't know what you call it uh, in English, but like you know, those uh, that Olympic game where you where you jump over hedges. It's supposed to be really quick, and she was like one of the um, uh, the athlete professionals for the DDR team, and so I really felt like you know that there should be <laughs> there should be at least some kind of class consciousness, you know, being performed here. But it was only in the individualist athlete. How can you be the best you? Sort of mumbo jumbo. But uh, I think for our purposes, it's interesting, you know, like that real long message, right? Uh, which I think we all agree that that was probably with the help of either the MI6, MI5, or the CIA, like that they managed to hijack uh, a TV channel and broadcast this message. And the fact that Poharish and Whitmore. John Whitmore is mentioned in this uh, TV hacking to uh, uh, put forward the message of the nine. And the fact that Whitmore is, you know, not known for this, but rather known as the, and I read some, you know, books about coaching. uh, And he's referred to as, you know, the grandfather or the elder, even the elder. They literally use this word. One of our elders spoke about this, and then they have a quote from him. that, that should make this more relevant, I think, to anybody who listens to this show um, to, to imagine that, you know, this is not so far flung as it might first sound, you know, that this is something that is actually part of your everyday life of being a uh, office worker insofar that you like me and Colin read uh, again, fingers crossed, <laughs> you have managed to escape it. Uh, maybe because you're just unemployed, read. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that this should be there is, uh, is, is yeah, somewhat crazy. And so, um, so this new group then, you know, because as I pointed out before, this is sort of the turning point from a subculture to a religion proper. Um, this is when they're starting to become called the Lab 9, rather than the cult nine or the group nine or, or, you know, whatever unofficial names they had before. And uh, it was based again at Poharish estate, uh, but have now moved to Ossingen. I don't know how to pronounce this, the estate at Ossingen in New York state. 
uh, and Personal Lab 9 had many wealthy and influential backers, just as they had had before. However, now they do not include... Um, I can't remember who it was now that we talked about before, but it was the uh, uh, Henry Wallace, right? It's no longer Henry Wallace because he's dead. But instead, uh, they get substantial money from the Bronfman's family, uh, which is a Canadian sort of semi-pseudo-aristocratic family. You don't have uh, aristocratic families anymore, right? Like high bourgeois family. And... um, an Italian nobleman called Baron Di Paoli. Now, Reed, you're, you're from Canada. Do you want to t- tell us a little bit about the Bronfmans and uh, maybe some suspicion as to why they might have put some money into this end of our? And if you don't have any suspicions about that, uh, you know, we, we, we can still speculate. Uh, so I, I, I would love to talk about the Bronfmans. Um, they're, they're sort of one of my, uh, one of my white whale, uh, center of my, uh, cork board, um, uh, uh, uh families. Um, but, um, so the way that I, I would just put it is that they're, they're an intergenerational cult family, um, as, um, sort of most recently shown in the, um, involvement of some of the, um, the, the current generation of, of Bronfman adult children in the, uh, the Nexium cult, um, that was involved in, um, weird sort of sexual slavery and sex trafficking in Hollywood and in particular the Canadian film scene um, led by that guy, um, Keith Renere, who um, had some uh, very weird patents for detecting uh, what he called quote unquote Luciferians, um, which I believe is terminology that was also used by the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, And it involved kind of a a very weird kind of parallax view style set up where where you would uh have a uh do something with scanning the uh the accused luciferian's eyes um in in response to uh certain negative stimuli um so some very strange stuff going on with with that generation but even before them um charles and barbara bronfman um who were the the two leading figures of the family in the 70s and the 80s they were close confidants of uh ira einhorn and uh actually um funded him um, secretly and illegally uh, to the tune of, I think, $2,000 a month in, um, in 1980s dollars um, for like eight or nine years while he was a fugitive from justice um, after fleeing his murder charge um, in, um, in, in 1979 um, until um, sometime in the late 80s. So um, they're a very spooky family, very sort of deeply um, involved in organized crime nowadays. They're, they're ardent Zionists and, uh, and philanthropists um, and still getting involved in, uh, in strange cult activities. Um, I remember Barbara um, explained away her uh, funding of Einhorn, even while he was still a fugitive, um, as, as being basically down to the fact that he was the best friend she had ever had, which is a very strange, sad, weird explanation. Uh, but it's, yeah, deeply spooky family. Um, each generation for the last couple of decades has gotten involved in weird cult shit. Oh, sorry, I was going to ask, uh, just out of curiosity, is this the, the Brothmans, Brothmans of uh, Seagram's, like the, the, the gin distillery and all that good stuff? You, you betcha. So, um, Mark, do you mind if I, if I read a little bit from the, uh, the notes that you got here on them? Yeah, 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 go on, please. So, yeah, so to give sort of the deeper context... Um, Colin, you're, you're exactly right. That's how the Bronfmans um, made all of their money. Um, so they're a white Russian um, 
you know, haute bourgeois family in Canada that made their fortune um, basically doing um, regulatory arbitrage by selling, because uh, Canada never enacted alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, um, and uh, working with um, Canadian and American organized crime to smuggle their um, Seagram's liquor across the American border. Um, according to um, LaRouche, uh, Edgar Bronfman was a member of the Jerusalem Foundation and a Knight of Malta with uh, close historical ties to the British Montefiore Samuel family, founders of Royal Dutch Shell, and a dozen financial houses, including Hill Samuel, Samuel Montagu, and others. The Jerusalem Foundation, in turn, is one of the leading international Jewish terror arms of the London-based Knights of Malta, according to uh, LaRouche. Uh, did you get that from, from Executive Intelligence Review, or, or is that from, like, Dope Inc.? Um, I can't quite remember. I, it was one of those uh, uh, photocopied uh, magazines from the LaRouche. So I can't remember mm-hmm. what, what is the, the official sort of uh, output from the LaRouche uh, call. I, be- I believe that's executive intelligence. Yeah, they've got, they've got a couple, um, but executive intelligence review is what it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so interesting. Yeah, a very sus family. Like, even if we don't want to, like, you know, maybe go too deep on, you know, whatever it is that the LaRouche are saying about them. I think already when you start off, like in the uh, in the alcohol production during the prohibition, you're you're gonna go down a path of some pretty strange connections, right? As to make your money, I think. Um, even though we, I guess that is one of the great qualities of Canada you'll still appear appear pretty, you know, appropriate, right? Because it, it's all very legal in Canada. It's just a question of how does it get into, uh, you know, south of the border, south of the border at this time being the United States. You know, I did mention this other one, the, uh, the Italian nobleman called Baron di Paoli. And uh, I, I don't know, like, uh, I, I really tried my hardest to find information about this Baron, but uh, what I could find was that this is also possibly very old money, uh, you know, very, very old Italian money coming from a wine distillery, which according to themselves, when I found like their homepage, which, if this is indeed that homepage, but I, I can't understand how like there can be more than one Baron di Paoli. And uh, so they were, you know, the title purveyors of the court. I don't know if this obviously well it can't be a title that you have in in America, but often in in Europe sometimes when you buy products it will say on it purveyors of the court or purveyors to the court on it, which means that you know this is something that the, the royal family also enjoys, right? And so Baron Di Paoli was uh, an estate in the early or in the I don't know if it was in the early but in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Empire. And they established themselves as a during the Napoleonic Wars as an in, you know having an international reputation of uh, uh, supplying the the Russian Tsar in Saint Petersburg with uh, wine, right? Because as I told, I, I talked a little bit about this, like in my hemp episode about the uh, the latter parts of the Napoleonic Napoleonic Wars established a sort of trade route between Saint Petersburg and the uh, uh, Baltic Sea ports of the Russian Empire to Vienna to sort of allow or uh, introduce American colonial goods into Europe by way of 
bypassing the uh, Napoleonic uh, French uh, blockade. And, uh, and, and they seem to have been very much part of this um, connection. And so their slogan is that, um, and I quote, our customers may no longer be emperors or czars, but our wines are still not for everyone or every day, end of quote. So, yeah, together with, uh, we, 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 this might, you know, it makes sense if it was them, since we already see with the, the Bronfmans that, you know, alcohol is connected and obviously this is much earlier than the prohibition, but, you know, they might have learned a few things from one, one another if they were both for some reason into funding the, uh, the early Lab 9, right? The Lab 9 then was portrayed here in the early days of the 70s as a, as an, as a genuine leftist effort to the 60s uh, was, you know, disintegrating. Uh, they are not uh, described as a genuine leftist effort, but like as the genuine leftist effort of the 60s was disintegrating into cults, then, uh, you know, drug culture and seemingly apolitical lifestyle movements, such as the game of the Sinanon, which we talked about, and coaching, uh, and, you know, this kind of, not hippie, but juppie style orientation, right? Uh, this became a kind of uh, somewhere in between the hippie and the juppie style commune with a loose band of hangers on or hangabouts moving around the central nucleus then of Buharish, Whitmore and Schlemer. Uh, but we got to ask ourselves, what kind of hippie commune, you know, uh, attracts this amount of rich people and also members of the intelligence agencies? seeing as it is indeed a commune run by a fully, fully qualified kahuna shaman and master hypnotist like Poharish. It was at this time that Poharish also carried out a series of experiments with the so-called Geller kids or space kids, quote-unquote, children with pronounced psychic gifts. Ostensibly, this was to... Um, investigate the extent of their powers, such as metal bending, which we know from Geller. But significantly, Paharish, soon, as we have hinted at before, had them remote viewing and hypnotized them to tell him where their powers originated. Now, I don't know if you guys agree about this, um, you know, before we go on to the next part of this sort of early development of the Lab 9, and, you know, we, this is the early stages of what I at least believe seems to be this, uh, this shift from a subculture to a pseudo-religion proper. Um, and, you know, that, that this seems to happen at the exact same time, you know, as the 70s is catching on and, and the the original intent of the 60s left is sort of disintegrating and, and you know, the counterculture is sort of opened up for grabs. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure that there was some ufology a part of the 60s counterculture already, but that this becomes such a dominant part of it. Um, I don't know, like if you, if you want to do like some, some historical you know, the history of ideas analysis of what's going on here at this point. You know, we, we often talk about like how the 68 disintegrates and, you know, are, uh, you know, are, are the beast still sus? You know, like, is it an op? Is, is the whole, 
you know, cultural phenomenon of the things like the doors and scenes inside the canyon. Obviously, the CIA have an interest in these things. The, the feds in general have an interest in these things. And they're trying to stir it in a specific way, you know, maybe by funding uh, Foucault to become ever more incomprehensible and to drop his, you know, Marxists, uh, his Marxist convictions and just speak about, I don't know, I can't remember what Greek terms he uses, but it really does have this kind of personal development core to it, right? Like when you read later Foucault, when he's no longer a Maoist, it's all about the beauty of the self and like, you know, how did the the, the true original uh, Democrats of uh, uh, Athens, you know, how, how do they explore themselves and how do they be, make themselves a true Democrat, which is not really a Democrat, but rather how do they make themselves a citizen, right? Uh, do you think there's a, a, a connection here to, to the jump that the that, that the, the ufology in general and uh, the, the, the group nine becoming the lab nine in the specific. Do you think there is a connection here um, about this? Definitely. And I think um, if, if nothing else, it's representative of a shift that occurs in um, communication technology, not exactly at the level of um, what is available to the average member of the public, but this is the period where um, network computing infrastructure, and in particular, um, social interaction uh, over um, network systems. So I think um, is is really taking off in uh, in research. Um, this is when um, then still called ARPA is doing a lot of um, of their funding uh, and and rolling out of uh, early um, intranets uh, to. Um, you know, specific universities in the United States. It's the time that uh, extreme uh, sus lord, but indispensable uh, author Jacques Vallée is doing both um, uh, computerized imaging uh, of um, uh, items on the surface of Mars for NASA and uh, studies for the Stanford Research Institute uh, of um, asynchronous networked uh, teleconferencing. So um, the sort of thing that we're doing right now, um, although uh, uh, not not live, um, uh, was also happening in, in sort of the, the, the mid 70s. Um, and so that kind of um, uh, return uh, it, uh, of um, the counterculture to question uh, to esoteric uh, topics like UFOs and psychic powers um, is something that you can see in other historical periods of great technological change, even before those things reach um, a mass audience. So this happens in, in um, the second big wave of, um, uh, or, or coincides in the second big wave of spiritualism in the 1910s, 1920s, after the First World War with the advent of um, wireless telegraphy and radio technology. Um, people will sort of uh, regain an interest um, in, in um, you know, questions of um, mediumship and channeling entities and seances. Um, and so in some ways, I think it's, it's an understandable organic um, reaction to, to the emergence of new communications technologies, but definitely has a lot to do with the way that um, the, 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 the collapse of the politicized counterculture um, was being seized on, as, as we all know, um, in very deliberate ways um, by um, counterinsurgency agencies, by, by corporate interests, by just, you know, um, scientists empowered by, by both of those kinds of entities to, uh, to mess around with people and groups. Right. Yeah. The, I, I think you put it quite uh, uh, accurately. 
uh, or at least in terms of my own suspicions. Um, uh, I don't know, Colin, what, what do you think? Like we already talked about um, a little bit earlier that this is right about the time that that early book, Morning of the Magicians, which was at least big in Europe, sort of also st- stirred the uh, the counterculture into, well, one big thing is imagining the Nazis as, uh, you know, as a, as a magical phenomenon and, uh, you know, starting to look into the things that will really only become, you know, really prominent with Hancock and, and uh, uh, the people we meet later in the 90s. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of archaeology, I, I don't know. I don't mean to put you on the spot, like because it's a very specific point. But like in terms of archaeology, do we also see some kind of a shift? I know a lot about like Chinese archaeology during this period in the you know in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, I mean, this is right about the time that they do find the terracotta armies. Well, that would be, I, I think, uh, yeah, no, it's about that time, um, which was a, as a great feat of sort of proletarian archaeology, as they wanted to put it, you know, because it was indeed found by farmers. And uh, yeah, is there any American correlation with this as well? Do we see a sort of shift in in the attitude of archaeology in the 60s, 70s here uh, towards something different or something? Is there anything that you would like to speak about? Um, So at least in terms of archaeology, that same period, the the 60s and the 70s within the U.S., you start to see the rise of what's called new archaeology, um, and it's primarily founded in what's called processualism, or the idea that pretty much all of human nature can be uh, kind of mapped and charted onto these very like kind of networked predicted models. Um, and it kind of goes back to what Reed's talking about. It's a very, it's very much a reflection of things like ARPANET. Um, and kind of this idea that uh, you know all of human culture is um, it's a it's a series of if then statements. Um, so if you have a you know rise in agriculture or a more complex kind of mode of production, then you'll have an equally large uh, you know stratification of culture or you know something uh, like a, a an increase uh, in let's just say like complexity in ceramics or things like that. Um, and so it's interesting how, at least within the U.S., it's mapping uh, this idea of uh, – it, it's it's reflecting back this kind of uh, scientific development that's occurring. And within kind of looking at it, you know, with hindsight, processualism doesn't really go all that far uh, because it – it seeks to answer so much that it leaves absolutely no room for variability. Um, and so processionalism is kind of looked at these days as this kind of pipe dream uh, idea of, well, we sought to explain everything. And so by doing that, we explained absolutely nothing. Um, whether or not you agree with that statement is <laughs> kind of six or one. It's a, something that's left up uh, for discussion still. Um but I, I think it's very interesting how those things they they kind of reflect back on each other, um, and uh, this is also the same point within American archaeology that you see kind of a shift away from structuralism as you would view it in philosophy into a post-structural kind of thing. This is whenever you start to see the rise of postmodernism kind of inflect within archaeology. Um, and so it's a lot of these ideas start to contrast within the 60s and 70s. It's very variable. Um, 
we start to throw off a lot of the ideas that we had in the early 1900s of uh, these kind of overall arching ideas of uh, you know the mound builders and things that are a little bit more what we would consider ancient aliens these days. And you start to see American archaeology, at least within the Southeast, where I'm concentrated, um, things become a lot more fragmented uh, and broken down. You have uh, people we, in archaeology, we have lumpers versus splitters. Uh, do you view culture as something who can be kind of lumped together within these cultural groups or things that should be split apart based on their you know, material culture? Um, and the idea that things should be split apart more and kind of fragmented more within these uh, systems that are networked together, but still kind of isolated with each other. Uh, it's the sixties and seventies are a very, uh, very kind of a fragmented time within American archeology. span <clears throat> I'll just say that. Yeah. That, that's really interesting because I was touching upon that. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that statement. Well, I'm actually, I, I think you are, uh, you know, the, that pots don't speak any language, right? There is this rise of archaeology to become a sort of thoroughly independent uh, science, you know, that does not need the help of anthropologists or linguists, etc., uh, etc. Et and then as it becomes an independent science who does not need the other social sciences, I uh, can imagine, and now I know since what you said, that it then it, in itself, it also becomes very fragmented and like, you know, separated into to different parts. Um, could we see then maybe, um, you know, the rise of ufology and the alternative fringe, you know, the big narrative, uh, you know, or the excessive narrative uh, field as, as, a, as a reaction to that, do you think, you know, that, that uh, while whilst archaeology is going one direction, popular historical narratives is going another of being, you know, super all-inclusive of being like, you know, it's all from these intergalactic Aryans, you know, <laughs> never mind the fragmentation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, American archaeology is kind of, it's, I don't want to say it's special uh, because it, it very much is special in both meaning of the both ways of looking at it. But um, there's a, there's a great quote from uh, two of like the very early American archeologists, uh, William Phillips. And their quote is uh, American archeology span is anthropology or it is nothing because in America um, archeology span is a subdiscipline of anthropology as a whole. Uh, you have archeology, span you have cultural anthropology these are things like ethnographies um you have things like linguistics uh biological anthropology so it's archaeology is a subfield of anthropology um within europe uh especially you know kind of the united kingdom archaeology is its own beast um it's it's looked at kind of separately away from anthropology and part of that has to do with how american archaeology is founded um it's the the father of American archaeology, excuse me, uh, and anthropology, uh, Franz Boas. He's he is not only looking at the material culture of people, but he's also talking to them at the same time. Uh, a lot of that goes into <laughs> the fact that he's doing that while removal 
is occurring um, and a you know a, a genocide of Native American peoples. And so the reaction that you see to that within the 60s and 70s is um, both, as you say, kind of a uh, let's try to break it off a little bit, but it's also um, within in, in a sense, it's an attempt to try to keep it within anthropology as a whole, um, to keep it as a as a subdiscipline um, to where we are attempting to look at, you know, human culture and kind of how people adapt to our environments, but we're looking at the material culture of it. Um, you know, so we're just, we're, we're one aspect of understanding humanity. Um, and so that, that time period is where there's this real kind of rip and tear between the two. Um, and that's where you get things, you know, you have this structuralist idea of, well, we can explain all of human culture uh, through these network systems. And then something like post-structuralism or post-modernism a little bit, you know, within a decade of looking at it as, well, you actually can't explain everything because, um, because they're, you know, each culture is so unique. Um, and so the, you look at something like the UFO movement that comes along or, you know, just a new age within in general. And, uh, it's kind of that third, that, that secret third thing that pops up there, uh, that, that third different thing. And, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at things and alt history kind of, as it's described within the Stargate conspiracy is kind of right in between those two. Um, it's not the full on, you can explain nothing. Um, and it's not, you can explain everything. Uh, it's kind of a, a weird liminal space, if you will. Right. And uh, yeah, we, we, we I, of course, we will get back to this later, you know, in terms of like, how does this, uh, how does the Ario heroic legacy keep on developing? And um, I can see how this fragmentation might have discouraged a lot of people. Um, who who wants to have you know an e easy answer to things, and um, yeah, in in general, this sort of the search for 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 the grand picture or like the the really the all inclusive picture is obviously the lure of new ageism. So in in that sense, I can sort of see how this might then, you know, it's very interesting that you do speak about this sort of. Uh, um, fragmentation of the science and uh, and and obviously like the difference between uh, uh, the European uh, attitude as well as the American attitude which might come both in their own ways from different kinds of uh, uh, colonial experiences um, but in the end obviously the the all-inclusive uh, I, I do you know I what we call like uh, Welthistory I think uh, like world history uh, in in German and, and in Scandinavian historiography, I, I do feel like, you know, especially with um, Graeber uh, recently, I feel that there is a sort of a point to doing that. Uh, Lenin also speak about this, you know, like when they are right before the NEP talking about sort of defragmentation of... Uh, uh, the university apparatus or in general the whole apparatus of the ruling body uh, you know of centralized democracy 
as to you know how separated do you really want to go here you know we know from experience all of us that most things are connected you know you don't have to be you know david ike to to make these assumptions that like oh it's all connected you know just tying the dots together like they are of course you know they they do connect to each other and it is a pretty extreme uh, assumption to make by archaeology uh, at this time to say something like uh, that pots don't speak a language and that, you know, uh, archaeology is a science unto itself. Um, you know, archaeology archaeology for the sake of archaeology, who is that really going to interest? You know, like, yes, archival uh, stockpiling of, of objects that have been found that do tell a, a story about the past might be interesting. But, you know, we, we, we have to sort of make a story, right? Like, that's why it's called he story. Right. Some somehow there also has to be that part. Like, yeah, and it doesn't have to be in the what's his name, the the, the old uh, rhetoric from the Roman Empire, who is often um, he's a big name in in the history of ideas, like the Cicero, like the Cicero's uh, approach of uh, history is only useful in so far that it tells a political message for its presence. Right. It is really literally a storytelling of sort of uh, making people do something in the present and and again yes power only derives from the battle of a gun and i and, and i do agree with what a lot of like you know what the archaeologists during the cultural revolution were saying as well that like this should not be fragmented we should organize it into an understanding of history that makes sure that people does something in the present uh obviously the ufo ufology and the alt history is not always in tune to this even though they might be in critique of the general uh, archaeology of fragmentation, which might be surrendering to uh, some kind of uh, overly uh, academic approach and, you know, things that can only really interest other archaeologists and so on. But um, so if we agree to some degree um, that uh, something is happening here around this time, and that we can see that there is a move from a subculture to a popular pseudo-religion, then we should really try to understand not only Le Schlemer, who we have not yet touched upon, uh, nor um, Whitmore, who is mentioned in that original TV hijacking, but we should also try to understand James Hertak, who is the uh, second in command of Poharish, and uh, who is probably one of the most influential people in ufology as a perceived religion that there has ever been. Now, Reed, Reed, would you like to tell us a little bit about James J. Hertak and like who he was? And then me and Colin will will drop in and, and also yeah, paint a picture of who, who this person might have been or might be.
Sure. Uh, and um, like, unfortunately, a number of the people that we discuss in this story, um, he is from uh, my um, or he, he uh, became prominent in um, my home area of uh, the um, San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I where I grew up before um, moving up to uh, Canada. So uh, her talk, according to Pictet and Prince, is, uh, quote, the ultimate guru of the Stargate conspiracy. He channeled much of the messages of the Nine and put it to print for popularization. Uh, he was, as mentioned uh, previously, Puharch's second in command at Lab Nine, and he was the first person to make the Mars-Egypt connection or supposed connection uh, public um, and uh, was uh, still a major player in the events at Giza. Um, if I use the present tense, this is reading an excerpt from the Stargate conspiracy. And so this was present, uh, or this, the, the statements that were current as of um, the mid nineties when this book was, uh, was published. Right. Leading up to that sort of 2000, the new millennium event. Right, right. right exactly. And, and Y2K and um, uh, all, all those, those things were, were uh, sort of recycled into the, uh, the 2012 um, mythos, just sort of ported onto Mayan pyramids instead of Giza pyramids. Um, so an American polymath and mystical philosopher and the founder of a uh, San Francisco Bay Area based organization called the Academy for Future Sciences is very cute. Um, and at whose feet many of the movers and shakers in this story are happy to sit. Um, Hertek uh, holds, um, I don't know if he's still alive. Um, he's probably still alive. Um, degrees in Oriental Studies and History, Social Sciences, Linguistics, Patristics, uh, and Greek Texts. Um, and speaks and writes seven languages, um, being currently described as a Silicon Valley-based consultant in higher technology. Is presented as scientific... Which is never a good title. No, no, that's uh, that's sort of when the, the, the Kill Bill sirens should... Uh, if, if they didn't already start, yeah. uh, they should really be going right now. <laughs> I have never used those before, so I will use them at this point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And he presented scientific work, um, and among others, the Academy of Science in, uh, in Moscow and Beijing, um, at a uh, plenary session dialogue of civilizations. Um, he was a speaker at the United Nations in January 2001, and at the UN World Summit on Sustainable Development in uh, August 2002 in Johannesburg, and at the United Nations Rio Plus 20 Environmental Summit in 2013 in Rio de Janeiro. Also a seat speaker, a UN group for believers in extraterrestrial uh, intervention that is heavily influenced by the Nine, Hertak carried out work at Giza in the late 1970s, which seems to have been in some way connected with SRI's presence there at that time. While he's never been officially employed by them, he's always maintained close contact with its senior figures. In particular, he has a close friendship with Lambert Dolphin Jr., a um, very senior physicist at SRI who we will get to later, who according to Hertak, quote, shared private insights about Giza with him in 1976. Hertog also knows Martin Leher, one of, if not the most influential um, American Egyptologists. Um, anything else you guys wanted to, to jump in with at that point? Um, not necessarily. Obviously, all these people are interesting, especially who the person I've got into, I guess, the most uh, is uh, Mark Lenner, like this, uh, the most influential American Egyptologist, because, uh, of course, Mark Lenner is also connected to the ARE, 
the R, the KC Foundation, right? And and I think Mark Lenner is one of the the key figures to uh, to speak about later when we try to yeah, we'll make the uh, the case that there is a great connection between the fringe archaeologists of uh, Hancock and Temple and and, and uh, the Belgian uh, Boldar, Bolvodar, what uh, Boldar, yeah, and uh, and also you know the the official mandated Egyptologist of Egypt, like like, like the official line and the fringe line are connected in Mark Leonard mm-hmm. and the fact that he is you know here together with the with them, not only them, but also the SRI of the Stanford Research, Research Institute is is interesting already. I think definitely it shows the very the very strange um, personnel overlap, right? All these guys who you would think would be professional rivals at best, or or consider the other sellouts and gatekeepers or um, cranks and um, and shells can can actually get along and uh, collaborate at some level. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'll just continue here. The seminal work um, of her talk, and indeed the new uh, UFO religion, is the Keys of Enoch, registered trademark of a uh, for a crypto aerial heroic interpretation of LSD Merkava mysticism or LSD chariot mysticism. Because what is the swastika in the Brahmin's mind, if not the wheel of time on the chariots of the Aryans or the Kurgans, as described in the Bhagavad Gita? The American writer Virgil Armstrong said in an article of the Spanish language New Age magazine Amaluz that, uh, quote, uh, referring to her talk, Jim told me that the international intelligence community claimed that Hitler had been taken off the planet by a UFO. Virgil Armstrong concluded that intelligence is correct, and to begin with, Hitler and his wife Eva Braun didn't die in the bunker in Berlin. Virgil Armstrong has decades of background working for American military intelligence as well as the CIA, and perhaps it was his time with um, the original Green Berets that made his publication some of the most uh, pseudo-religions and escapist out, pseudo-religious and escapist out there, with titles such as, quote, The New Age Primer, Spiritual Tools for Awakening, Way Home, UFOs, The Merkaba, The Photon Belt, and You, The Twelve Women Apostles, with a cross on the cover, and his most popular book, uh, concerningly titled Phone Calls from the Future. Just answer the God phone. Just answer the God phone. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta leave it to the CIA, man, <laughs> to make a book that says. Phone calls from the future, my friend. <laughs> it's not even Havana syndrome anymore. It's just yes, yes. You're being talked to by a cold, conductive computer in outer space who is telling you what to do. <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. Like when we look, I don't know. We have touched upon. One or maybe two already who have, you know, claimed that sort of what was the original inspiration for you to get into ufology? And then, you know, you have a sort of origin story of like when I was a young child, when I was a sea child, they they might not say that. But, you know, my mother told me that I received a phone call from the future (laughs) and then, you know, things just, you know, planned out the way that they were supposed to be, you know, planning out. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, all of them are insane, right? Like spiritual tools for awakening. You know, you know, you can tell you you get the feeling of like a religiosity here. You know, there is a path to be followed. There are like steps to advance. You know, from one to the other. Uh, way home, the UFOs Merkaba, <laughs> the photon belt, and you. It almost sounds like I don't know when it always says you know that sort of and you in in the end. Like I usually think of some sort of benign, you know, Christian stay-at-home mom making uh, I don't know a cookbook. You know, like it could just be something like oh the uh, Thanksgiving turkey and you or something. You know, like just to make it more personal, like as to why should you get into this somehow. Uh, yeah, I don't know <laughs> if you have something to say about this guy. Do you know more about like, you know, Virgil Armstrong? Uh, he seems to be pretty prevalent here in, in these things. And and again, that the fact that he is a friend with her talk is interesting. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to remember where I've seen his name before. Um, and it, it's it's from um, I don't know where I've seen this, but um he published another book called the Armstrong report um, the, uh, in, in 1998, which has just a really funny, um, it, it, I'll put this in the, um, the Zencaster uh, chat. Um, the cover is it's got a, um, a, a little kind of goblin gray alien uh, with a flying saucer over his head facing towards a human and the human's got a globe over his head and the human's kind of like waving at him and the title is they need us we don't need them which I don't know exactly what that what that's supposed to mean but it um it, it's just it, it's 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 real real crank stuff I think it's one of those books that, that argues that uh, the, the aliens need to harvest our DNA because their their species is dying out or something like that. I also I also see in here uh, it, it it mentions the space uh, the Space Brothers, um, which is always a fun topic to cover. Uh, yeah, it's that idea that uh, they've replicated themselves so many times that without us they uh, they're just genetically inferior, and that's why they just look like that. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. It's the uh, the whole. Um, they don't. They want to know what it is like to be a human, but they've sort of lost track, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the usual yeah. narrative. I think. I'm just reading the the Amazon blurb for this, and it, it, this book actually looks like a um, a prepper's guide to surviving um, the um, the fourth dimensional uplift that the uh, the 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 invalid, uh, you know. Um, shambling aliens are going to force right. upon us. I, I, I think a lot of the books uh, coming out uh, during this time from this uh, general source uh, are very similar. I mean, this book, it doesn't even... It, it's just like, this looks like a Trotskyist pamphlet or something, like a really bad one. Like, it's just like somebody just drew a picture, right? Of uh, like an alien being confronted by the person who knows and understands that we don't need them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I feel a lot of like the books coming out of this time are in the same vein that they, they, they are sort of handbooks, you know, like how to do this or how to do that. And like, you know, how should you prepare yourself? And, and uh, yeah, they're, they're very, it's very that, uh, yeah, going back to, you know, what one of his other titles said already, the photon belt and you, 
you know, it's just like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> the photon belt and you. I mean, I know in, in, in terms of, I don't know if this is necessarily the exact same thing, but you guys please fill me in. But the photon belt, is this also what's very... I mean, I, I generally do agree with sort of uh, theories about that we haven't been to the moon. And uh, and the photon belt, is this the, the, this is the radioactive uh, field that surrounds the Earth that even today NASA projects are like sort of wondering how we're going to get through this. And they've sort of slip of tongue suggested this as well, that like, you know, this is still a, you know, a bit of a pickle, whereas like, yeah, well, it shouldn't be a pickle, should it, if you've already been to the moon, right? Uh, is that what he's talking about? No, that's, the, yeah, you're thinking of the Van Allen radiation belt. Oh, the yeah, photon yeah. belt, I, I'm hoping that this is an accessory that one can wear. They're like, this is an, an invention. <laughs> Holding up my pants like, with the photon belt. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Okay, so I, I, I hate to do this, but I have to. So you can read the first sample of this book, Chapter One: First USA Capture of a UFO. And I, just, I want to read a short clip here. You can cut this out if you want, Marcus. No, 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 go on. Our story begins in 1948 with the 82nd Airborne Division, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. For those who don't know, this is Special oh, Operations. Yeah. At the time I was a young captain, my assignment was G2 Air for, Air for the division. I was in charge of all aerial phenomena, such as photo reconnaissance, photo interpretation, and photogrammetry. My background was well suited for this, since I had spent all of World War II in my capacity of intelligence officer and operative. During this tenure and preparatory to returning to my alma mater, the CIA... It doesn't get any better than that. Like you, you cannot put a better punctuation on. This is a prepper book for spooks. As if the CIA is like just one university of others where where you learn. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, Harvard, then I went to the CIA, <laughs> then I went to Oxford. <laughs> Seeing the fight songs of the CIA and fighting, you know, G two intelligence and in football games. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of how they, they treat it. Something like, a, you know, being a Rhodes Scholar. That's kind of like doing a, you know, doing a, um, a CIA training course. Um, I did find what the photon belt is. Um, and I'm not going to try to... Please tell me. I can't. I'm, I'm looking at the words and I don't... It, so it, uh, the photon belt is something far greater than astronomical or scientific postulates as to how the solar system and its planets rotate around... Alcyone, our central sun. So we're already dealing with probably more than one sun here, classic alchemy stuff. And how okay. in this process, right, our right. solar system and planets experience 21,860 years of darkness and 4,000 years of light. The whole process is a profound sequential spiritual experience detailing directly with the Christ consciousness. Um, so he's got some diagrams and there's... Um, there's a null zone. Just making it easy to you to make the jump. Exactly, yeah. Um, so the photon belt, I think, are the periods of 4,000 years of light that we live in. I think that's what he's talking about. It's something to do with... This is really... Go ahead. Yeah, go on. I'm, sorry. It's, <laughs> I'm just... <clears throat> it's something to do with the uh, ascension between 
the third dimension, the fourth dimension, the fifth dimension, and there's a wedge labeled divine scenario, and then there's a couple of, yeah, I think you, you have to look at the diagram to really get it. We, we exist within the null zone, but I do just want to point out here, within this, the years of darkness, it is 10,500 years again. Oh, that number comes back up. Yeah, you're right. As we ascend, they descend and become the new planet Earth. New life forms repeat another 10,500 years of negativity and darkness. God damn it. Yeah, I mean, this is really like uh, Goodrick Clark or no, no, no. One of those really pretty good researchers of like the Nazi occultist made one book called, I think, The Polar Mythos. Like, um, Mm. this was like, this is really big in like Nazi ufology occultism you know that that the uh, the angle of the earth has uh, uh, shifted a bit and that there was once upon a time uh, a time where where everything was very 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 symmetrical and like you know there was 12 hour light 12 hour darkness all over the world there were no uh, there were no like real seasons in the same way and you know things were just easier right man like, you know, because you didn't have to wander like the Jew, you know, to go to the places where, you know, things mm-hmm. were good at one time and bad at another. It was just permanent. And then because uh, you're yeah, the Shlomo magicians, they tilted the earth, man. <laughs> and now look at this, this fucking chaos we have now with winter sometimes and summer at another time. And, you know, whoa. it's just crazy. Is I, um is this book um Arctos the polar myth in science symbolism and Nazi ex- survival? Exactly, exactly that one. Yeah, that one. That one's great. That book is awesome. <laughs> There's so much is, shit in there. Is this a Nazi prepper book? <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm wondering. <laughs> it's just the CIA polar <laughs> version of it. The Galen organization putting out their prepper guide. They've got uh, recipes for 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 um, freeze dried bratwurst. <laughs> I mean, I'm a man who really likes sort of Arctic uh, seed banks, so I, I have a certain like sort of you know I like the idea of like you know really keeping the heritage alive in this sense. But I, somehow I don't think this is where they are going with this. You know, <laughs> to have like you know st- Stone Age uh, wheat. Uh, being prepared for future generations, I, I think they have another different idea of uh, of what seed is to be <laughs> preserved. Ew, gross. <laughs> this is a children's program. What are you doing, Marcus? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Like so, so that people don't think, you know, that this is necessarily all. You know that we're just making connections that don't really exist. Um, would you guys like to t- tell me a little bit about Alice? Alice, sorry, Alice Bailey, the the very coiner, the woman who coined the term New Age, and uh, and how she is connected to, or rather, how her talk indeed built its own premises of this book. Yeah, the <laughs> registered trademark of uh, Keys of Enoch and how how this all already appears in the works of Alice Bailey. Would you like me to to tell you about that? (laughs) Would that be a good thing, do you think? Or or are we going to get cancelled for that? 
No, no, I think I think uh, you should let us have it. Yeah. Right. So uh, the reason why I'm like putting on such a, um, I don't know, such a, a pretentious uh, uh, flair as, as I get into Alice Bailey is the fact that, that, man, I've been down like a rabbit hole of like trying to figure out what the theosophists were doing in India uh, during the uh, Victorian holocausts, because it's some pretty fucking grim shit. But we're not going to get all the way back then, you know, because that would be getting us back to Blavatsky days already. And we're far away from doing that, because before we get back to Blavatsky, we're going to go back to the early OTO of the Nazis. But we might as well start uh, with Alice Bailey, at least to, to, to hammer or anchor her tuck story somewhere. And, uh, and that, that's, all, that's, that's good. That's a good thing to do because already with uh, Alice Bailey, things get fucked up. 